0: Growing up, Joyce didn't think much about limestone, in spite of the fact that she was born in Olytic, which is named after the limestone the town was founded on.
1: I think it's significant that I was born a mile from quarries and never really noticed that until recent years. I'm kind of proud of that, really. <laughs> I feel like I was part of it,.
0: It wasn't until she was older that she realized how much of a part of it she was. And she's dedicated a lot of the past couple decades to learning more.
1: Of course, I love talking about it. I mean, I could talk for hours. I've learned so much about things that people have no clue about. And I want somebody to know it before I die. I don't want things to just, you know, go away.
0: I'm Alex Chambers. This week on Interstates, we'll hear from Joyce Jeffries and others about limestone in southern Indiana. As she said, she could talk about it for hours. This will be about 50 minutes. Coming up right after this. This is Interstates, from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. I want to start by clearing the air. I'm calling this episode Joyce Jeffries and the Cutters, but that's not quite accurate. Because those cutters don't actually exist. I don't mean the Bloomington Cutters cycling team. They definitely exist, even if they were born from a fiction. But the actual cutters, the people who've worked in the quarries and stone mills of south-central Indiana for a century and a half, I was chatting with some of them on a forum recently, and apparently they don't call themselves cutters. Well, no, of course they don't call themselves that, you're probably saying to yourself. It's an insult. It's what the IU students called them, at least back in the 70s, when that great documentary came out about the time the townies raced in the Little Five. Except, of course, Breaking Away isn't a documentary. And the folks on the forum said they were known as Stonies. And they figured the reason it was changed to cutters in the movie was that in 1978, calling them stonies would have gotten them confused with stoners, and that would have made it hard to focus on the plot. An industry veteran pointed out that there are a lot more specific descriptions of who they are. Stone carvers, stone cutters, planermen, gang sawyers, draftsmen, estimators, secretaries, supervisors, All, he wrote, with high skills doing their part to build spectacular limestone creations. And so, this week, we're going to hear about the limestone workers of South Central Indiana. Joyce Jeffries, who grew up and worked among them her whole life, she'll tell us the stories. We'll also tour the Bybee Stone Mill with Dorian Bybee and his wife, Gia Kim. But first... If we want to talk about stonecutters and their stories, I think we need to spend a few more minutes with Breaking Away. If you're from Bloomington, or South Central Indiana in general, you probably know Breaking Away. If a movie can function as an anthem, Breaking Away is Bloomington's. For me, the movie was a test that would determine whether I could stay. See, I came to Indiana because I'd fallen in love. When I met my girlfriend's family, and they heard I wasn't from here, they sat me down and stuck the movie in the VCR. After it was over, they waited for my answer. Bated breath and all. I told them I'd enjoyed it, which was true, and they welcomed me into the family. Well, I also had to pass the Monsieur Hulot's holiday test, but we'll save that for another episode. Breaking away is about a group of boys on the cusp of adulthood and in denial about it. It's about the tension between university students, Indiana University students specifically, and the local kids who, for one reason or another, couldn't go to college. It's about class, it's about gender, it's also about race, or at least ethnicity, in the way the main character, Dave Stoller, falls in love with the Italians, whose father can't stand. Their foreignness is immensely romantic in contrast to Dave's life in a small Midwestern city. The plot centers on the Little Five, and for listeners not from around here, I should explain, that's the Little 500. It's an annual race that nods to the Indy 500, of course, but the Little Five is on bikes. The men's race is 50 miles, the women's is 25, and the riders compete in four-person teams. In the movie, the local boys want to compete, but they have trouble qualifying as a non-university team. Against all odds... They make it into the race, and lo and behold, well, I don't want to ruin it. To my mind, the race isn't actually what the movie's about. The real tension is whether the boys are going to go to college or just keep living in the present, swimming in the quarries and hanging out. One of the things they're trying to break away from is the limestone work their fathers did. In the logic of the movie, limestone is a dying industry. There's no future there. College is the future. Limestone is the past. The way they turn away from work where you're actually making something to white-collar jobs that require a college education sounds about right for the period. It was the late 1970s. The Midwest was deindustrializing. The rustification really took hold in the 80s, as car manufacturers sent jobs overseas, technology replaced steel workers, and major cities across the Northeast and Midwest hemorrhaged good jobs. Oh, and Reagan broke the unions by firing 11,000 air traffic controllers when they went on strike. He banned them from ever working for the federal government again. Did you know that? I didn't know that. So this move away from manufacturing was in the air, and as I said, limestone already seemed like a thing of the past. And no matter how much skill it actually involved, manual labor just didn't get that much respect. Late in the movie, Dave Stoller's dad has a moment of honesty about all that. He used to work in limestone, but in the time of the movie, he's a short-tempered hustler of used cars. He and Dave end up out for a walk on Indiana University campus, right by the library. The whole campus is made of limestone.
2: I was damn proud of my work. And the buildings went up. When they were finished, the damnedest thing happened. It was like buildings is too good for us. Even now, I'd like to be able to stroll through the campus and look at the limestone, but I just feel out of place.
0: It's the emotional climax of the movie, the scene where the father and son finally start to understand each other. Dave's dad admits he wants his son to go to college because there's no future in limestone.
2: You guys still go swimming in the quarries? Sure. So the only thing you got to show for my 20 years of work is the holes we left behind.
0: I was curious if that idea of local kids as cutters still held water, so I went and found some high schoolers. Their English teacher, Rachel Barr, had recently shown the movie as part of a unit about having a sense of place. Was there still tension between local kids and the college students?
3: Not really, just because I feel like more in the last couple of years, not going to college has been a little bit more different. A lot of people have decided to get their associate's degree or get certifications. A lot of people are becoming entrepreneurs.
0: That was Nicole DeMort. Her classmate, Ambrose Lee, agreed. I would say that the cutters now actually have the upper hand against the college students because, like, the college students... They just come here for a few months just to learn and then they leave again and Bloomington's empty again. And so, like living here, here my whole life, I've always thought we are better than the college students. Actually, that sense that locals had more power in town ran pretty strong. Some of the students felt like they had to emphasize that in spite of everything, they still treated the college students with respect. Here's Lizzie Bush.
4: I have a friend who's a student, so I've met a few students. Um... I know a couple of my friends from school, same thing, where they have friends who are students.
0: We're cool. My best friend is a college student. I didn't expect to hear that. But when you drill down, it's maybe not as different as it seemed. Here's Lizzie again.
4: I can see the undertones of the class divisions of the characters, um, where they talk about the students all being, you know, from richer families, whereas... All of the cutters are fairly, like, they're not as well off. And I think that's still something that you can see in Bloomington. Every time I go onto Facebook, there's always somebody talking about how housing prices have risen, how gas is more expensive in certain sides of the town. And I think that's just because IU students... They still tend to be a little bit more well-off, I think.
0: I just have to say, I was not paying attention to housing prices as a high school senior. And that's not even the only moment Lizzie and I discussed property values. Go Lizzie! Maybe we'll get into tax code next time. Anyway, back to the question of tensions between students and locals.
3: Yeah, so uh, that was very fascinating. This is Peyton Chitwood. Whenever I watched the movie at first, I, I never experienced, or at least either heard of or seen that tension prior to the movie. But after the movie, it was really fascinating to see because I I work in town and I was hearing, I overheard some customers in our store just talking about uh, some townie said something. And I was like, wow, like people are still saying that. It's very interesting. Like I, I didn't know how much of it was movie exaggeration or not, but it's, I had never had heard that before. People were just talking about, you know, townies and all of that. And it was very interesting because that, that really was the key thing that told me that this movie is still holding up.
0: Did it feel like they were, like, sort of turning their noses up?
3: Um, yeah. Yeah, it definitely felt like that. I only heard a couple words, but the way that it was said was very against it or looking, Like you know, you know. So looking almost down on a person or something. It wasn't positive.
0: These students definitely identify as locals. Like, we're taking our city back, and I hope we can eventually and get rid of some of the apartment complexes. It's too much college stuff here. But that doesn't guarantee a connection to limestone. I mean, it doesn't grow on trees. It forms in shallow seas, where the remains of calcium-carbonate-based life forms accumulate over millennia, ultimately lithifying into a soft rock that becomes case-hardened and resistant to weathering after it's been quarried, making it a desirable building material. It's not just lying around. Well kind of is. But it is easy to overlook. And I think the workers feel overlooked too. Like Dave Stoller's dad in the movie. Here's Lizzie again.
4: You know, I've never seen the quarries. They're all like roped off now. I've been to Woolery Mill, never saw it in action, never saw it as a mill. So I don't know. There's just kind of a nostalgia for something that I've never even seen.
0: How do you end up with nostalgia for something you've never seen? The legacy of limestone workers isn't just holes in the ground. As I said, there's a whole limestone campus in Bloomington. The old house I live in has a limestone porch, limestone steps. But it's not about the stone itself. Everyone who talks about Indiana limestone reminds you of the famous buildings it's on. But the work itself was dangerous and fairly anonymous, I think. As people move on to other things, away from that work, there's a fear that the stories are going to be forgotten, which means the people will be forgotten. That's hard to face. So, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to hear some of those stories and get a feel for the stone mill at the same time. This is Interstates. It's Interstates, I'm Alex Chambers. We're talking limestone this week and limestone workers. I'm going to drop out now. We'll start with Joyce Jeffries, who grew up among limestone workers in Bedford, Indiana.
1: It would be the northeast corner, is where my grandparents lived in the corner there. In Olympic. And then the little house behind it, which is kind of on the alley, that is where I was born. And uh, my dad had to walk up to Doc Dullens' house, which was like two blocks. In six inches of snow to get him. <laughs> but I just, I think it's significant that I was born a mile from quarries and never really noticed that until recent years. I'm kind of proud of that, really. <laughs> I feel like I was part of it. I've been around stone all my life, but I didn't really realize how closely I was associated with it. In 1991, I went to work at Stark Quarry office, and uh, the girl that worked in the office said she would introduce me to everyone. Nine out of 10 people that came through that door was someone I'd known all my life, including the truck drivers. I mean, it was amazing. I didn't realize. And then I thought, well, on my block, there were at least three or four guys that worked for stone companies. We just took it for granted because that was what, all we knew. One day, one of the truck drivers came in, and he had a beard and sunglasses, and he looked at me and he says, Joy, you don't know who I am, do you? And I said, no, who are you? <laughs> and he said, Gary Matlock. Well, we used to run around in the same gang when we were in high school. And one time he took me to work, and he drove from Olytic to Bloomington in seven minutes. <laughs> he drove like a maniac. He, he's passed away since then, but he was a funny guy.
5: A we'll let pause up here. Okay, great. It's a nice little overview. Um, basically, as we walk through here, this is the old mill, and then we'll end up in the new mill, which is adjacent. But as we walk through here, we're kind of going backwards through the process. So here, right where we're, uh, where we're standing here is where the finished stone will get packed onto pallets and then go out to to wait outside to be shipped to wherever it's going. Then we have the cutter yard, which is typically where a lot of the stone gets finished. And in the far back, you can see through the door in the back there are actual quarry blocks. So that's where the block comes in and starts the process. So you're kind of seeing from this vantage point the entire process, but in reverse. My name's Dorian Bybee. We are at Bybee Stone Company. My family's business has been here since 1979. I grew up working almost every summer here from the time I was in late middle school or whenever it was legally allowed for, you know, before there was no child labor, fortunately. But uh, but yeah, I've been working here summers uh, since I was a kid. And it's a beautiful October day. Uh, it's a nice day to be at a at a
1: mill. I'm Joyce Jeffries. We're here at Stonecroft in Bloomington, in the courtyard, and flowers are beautiful, and the birds are around, and it's a really nice day. I've only been here since last July, but it's it's been nice. I've met some interesting people and some nice people, and mostly the aides are very good. They'll do about anything I ask them to do.
5: It's almost like a cathedral at times.
0: piles and piles of dust there's a guy sweeping the dust out shoveling it into a bin big machines planers lots of stone lots of pieces of stone in all different states bales of something like straw the floor is just covered with dust it's like we're walking on the moon
5: You really need to keep your head on a swivel and watch out for the overhead cranes. You don't want to go underneath those.
1: My grandfather, Jeffries, his sister, Floyd, was married to my my grandma's brother, Jesse S. Owen. They both worked in Dark Hall Quarry, which was down near Fayetteville now, but Jesse, got caught between two stones and kind of got his insides mashed. I talked to his daughter, Christine, about two years ago. She just passed away about a year and a half ago. She was in her 90s. And she said their neighbors came to school and got them, her and her brothers, and and took them home. And then they took them to the hospital. They went to see their dad. And she said he told them to be good and, and help their mom. And then they went home. But after they got home, somebody came and told their mom that uh, he thought of something else he wanted to tell her. But she didn't get to the hospital before he passed away. Christine, Jesse's wife, uh, had three kids. They were like 9, 10, and 13. And so they took the body back to Horse Cave for burial. My grandpa rode on the train with the body, but he hired a taxi to take my my grandma and Aunt Floy and her three kids, plus my dad was 5 and my Aunt Irene was 2. So there they were and my my grandma was pregnant with her third child. So five little kids and two, you know, widow and her sister-in-law in a horse and wagon which I, it takes about four hours to drive down there now so I don't know how long it took them but I'm sure it was a stressful time because they were grieving and then they had those kids to control. my grandpa's brother Ed had he got married and had a babe, had a baby James and when James was 11 months old his wife died. Well, James was the youngest, I think they had four or five kids, and so then he remarried and had some more kids. I think he had 12 kids altogether, and um, then his second wife left him, and so there he was with all these kids, but um, Stanley was one of the younger ones, and I guess he was 10 or 11, he was playing in the stacks, rock stacks at Dark Hollow, and he on his head on a rock on a Sunday night, and he died on Tuesday. This was 1925. And, of course, Ed, being left with all those kids, and, you know, the youngest one, James, was only 11 months old, and he just passed away last year. It had to have been hard on him. Some of the guys got caught in a between a railroad car or something and just got squished. I mean, and stones fell. This one boy was 16 and he was a water boy. I didn't even know they had water boys till my mom told me that back in the nineties. But um, apparently they had little boys to carry water to them in the quarries. But this one boy was just standing there and a big rock fell on him and crushed him. Stuff like this happened all the time. People, you know, drowned in the quarries. There's been a lot of that. One of the people that I went to school with drowned in the 60s. Him and another guy. Like a teenager. Yeah, they were they were still in high school. In the early 50s, in Oleg, they had a union office there, at the end of Main Street. And I can remember my mom and dad driving through there, and there would be this long line of men covered in stone dust. They looked like Pillsbury Doughboys. That's the best I can describe it. I wish I had a picture of it. It was just an amazing sight. This, I mean, a long line. They, you know, there may be two or three hundred of them waiting in line to vote on a strike or not. When they had a strike, it really affected a lot of things, you know, a lot of people too. But they didn't strike that much, I don't think, but at the turn of the last century, they were only making like 15 cents an hour at tops. And we can't imagine that now.
0: No. Were the strikes effective? Were they able to get better working conditions?
1: Most of the time they did, yeah. Because my family had worked in stone so much, they just didn't, it was just something they did. They didn't I don't think they really understood what they were doing and how much of this country has been built from our stone. It's
2: amazing how many people don't know much about it. I grew up in Indianapolis and people don't know anything about it really. But my address on my house was carved out of stone. The houses in line are out of limestone. If you go down down to Indianapolis, I mean, it's everywhere, the Circle Monument, I used to see it when I was a kid, not even know where it came from. I didn't—I knew no one that worked in a stone mill, uh, which is amazing. What, about 30-some uh, capitals, state capitals are built out of it? It's just everywhere, and when I, I used to work, my dad had a vending company in the 90s, I drove around all over Indianapolis, and I couldn't believe all the stuff I saw. You'd go in really bad neighborhoods, and there would be old churches or buildings with Corinthian caps, it's just unbelievable. There's a real big building with Corinthian caps on the street near Thomas Hendrickson's house. He was a vice president. And it's in a real bad neighborhood. Uh, there's a bar that has a sign that says no gang colors, And you go around the corner and then here's this building with Corinthian caps and stuff all over it. And uh, I'm not even sure it's in use, but it's just everywhere. You'll see it on old garages carving work. Uh, uh, but just unbelievable but it's everywhere. But it's just amazing that so many people don't know anything about it in their own state. You know, it's uh, it's been an unbelievably big uh, industry that people just don't know anything about.
1: Can you tell me
2: your name? Tom Dixon. I came out here in 1980, spring of 80. They just bought this place and ended up going to Texas. Uh, but uh, I took an apprenticeship down in Olytic in 79. I didn't even really know that carving was going on. I was going to the art school down there, and I didn't know they were doing any carving work, really. A guy come in and told me about it. He goes, uh, you ought to get a friendship down there. He saw me working in the sculpture department, and he said, uh, they're doing all kinds of stuff down there. So uh, I come down here right away, and, and uh, went to work at the art center up there, and a the guy that used to work here had been working there, and I saw the pictures of what was going on here. So I came right down here and applied for a job, and I've been here ever since. They're great stories. This is very similar to what you'd see on Notre Dame Cathedral. Now I knew that because I painted a picture of the uh, Hunchback Notre Dame in high school, and actually in the background painted the Notre Dame Cathedral and I painted the saddleback molding, which I think was done in the 1100s. I don't know where they got the idea for that.
1: On Dillman Road in 37, there's a semi-truck place, and if you take Dillman Road to the first driveway down, it goes into Star, and it's a real rough winding road, but you could go there. And they have a quarry up on the north side, Star Quarry, and I had gone up there too, at times, to take things to the foreman and and pick things up and stuff, which was kind of exciting. What
0: was exciting about it?
1: Well, just to be there where they're quarrying the stone and see it and everything.
0: At what point did you really start to think about the stoneworkers?
1: In 1991, I was talking to my mom, and we were talking about her dad, and she was talking about him working in the quarries, and at some point she said something about water boys, and I said, water boys? She said, yeah, they had boys to take water to them because they didn't want to interrupt their work. I couldn't imagine that. Little boys, I mean, mostly young kids, like 9, 10 and to me growing up being a little kid you know we never had to do anything like that i mean i helped with washing and ironing and watching my brothers and sisters and things like that but i never had to go out and do physical work and then i thought about my grandparents on both sides and their way they grew up my grandma jeffries had nine kids in her family and they worked in the tobacco fields and stuff you know and my grandma said she hated working in the tobacco fields because the tobacco worms were so nasty and they had to chop them up, you know, to get them off the tobacco. <laughs> of course, I love talking about it. I mean, I could talk for hours. I've learned so much about things that people have no clue about. And I want somebody to know it before I die. I don't want things to just, you know, go away. Here
5: and over there, you see all the metal tools? Those are used on the planers. And they're all done by our own blacksmith whose shop is right over there. So for any kind of design, any profile that an architect would choose, they're going to, we're gonna fabricate our own custom metal tool to produce that here in the planer yard. So if you're wondering what all these things are, that's what they are.
1: Like they used to have the wooden derricks, then they had steel derricks and channeling machines. They don't have any of that anymore to get a big rock out. They had to drive wedges down in it, and then they had to physically push it over. Now they have air bags that they put down in there, and they have diamond saws to cut it up and stuff. It's so much easier.
5: These are the gang saws, which are arguably one of the older technologies here. Uh, Most stone mills gave up on them decades ago, Uh, and we've we still use them although we've gotten some newer technology that allows us to do some of the same work but we use them for certain types of finishes um you can see here this the fact that this one has water running on it means they must be planning on using it or they just did Uh, but this is how we can get what we call shots on finish or chats on finish which has to do with just using a certain size aggregate whether it's kind of a sand for the chats on or actual metal pellets for the shots on. They just go into the slurry, and they're they're there as the blade cuts the stone, and they produce a very specific, very interesting texture.
0: All right, it's time for a short break. You're listening to Interstates. This is Interstates. If you're just joining us, we're listening to memories and stories of limestone work from Joyce Jeffries, mixed with a tour of the Bybee Stone Mill with Dorian Bybee and Jay Kim
5: so tell me about this so this is our cnc we got it a few years ago and effectively you can think of it as being a a roughing tool
0: it it looks a little bit like like a giant 3d printer
5: well other than the fact that it's removing instead of adding which you know a 3d printer is an additive process compared to us it's uh, not so different they're both uh, computer controlled they're based on having a 3d model uh, and then programming uh, using special CNC software. But once you start it up, uh, you can just run it all day, all night. We typically will run the CNC not only overnight, but over the weekends.
0: And it must be just incredibly precise.
5: It's In Indiana Limestone, in the industry, we have a 16th-inch tolerance, so that you know basically everything we do needs to be perfect within 1 16th of an inch. And 1 16th of an inch, depending on who you talk to, on who you talk to, uh, is either a large number or a very small number. Uh, most people will think of that as being pretty small. Um, but for us, actually, it's, you know, we try to do better than a 16th all the time. The machine itself is more accurate than that by far, but the machine does not see problems in the stone. It doesn't recognize. Our craftsmen can look at a piece of stone and understand there might be a hidden seam in the stone or something like that. Uh, And that's really valuable and that's something a machine will never be able to do. You'll also see we've got water coming out of the spindle and that has to do with just the fact that you're putting metal on stone at a high rotation and that's gonna cause heat. So the water keeps things cool. It also helps move the the material that's been removed off the stone because we really don't want that to be piling up on top of the surface were cutting so that's part of the process really historically you saw it down in the gang saws where water was running there uh, water is always a really important part of cutting stone historically it always has been so almost every stone mill you'll find is near a lake or a stream uh, because there's always been that need for water and so here we are with one of the most cutting edge technologies you could find in a stone mill and it still has that relationship to
1: the water as I mentioned earlier, some of these stone mills were open on both ends. Like the Edinger mill used to be over behind where Carzer Aluminum used to be. That mill was open on both ends, and they worked all winter long in it, you know. Well, Jim, my brother in law, he said they had a little shed that they called the, the warm up shed. They had a little heater in there. And so he got really cold, and he said he went in there to thaw out a little bit and he felt something wet on his legs. He pulled his pants down, and his legs had cracked open because he was using, it's kind of like a grinder thing. They call it a bug where they sand the stone down smooth, and it has to have water on the blades to keep it from overheating. So that water was coming down on his pant legs and freezing, and then freezing to his legs. And I can't imagine working under those kind of conditions to be in that pain and, and still work. Those guys were tough.
6: This is a Chatsong cut. So you see the random groove, that variation of the thickness of a groove and the shallowness. This is um, the one that's produced with that gang saw.
0: And this is made with sand or?
6: Metal shot.
0: Metal shot.
5: Yeah, so this one is using metal shot. The Chatsong finish is similar, but a little less extreme, let's say. It's more subtle.
6: My name is Jia Kim. I'm originally from South Korea, Seoul, born and raised. I am a faculty member of the Eskenazi School of Art, Architecture and Design, and I teach architecture in the program called the J. Irwin Miller Architecture Program, located in Columbus, Indiana.
5: Uh, I'm also a faculty member at IU at the Eskenazi School. I teach interior design in the undergraduate program there.
0: So we're at the other end of the warehouse now. There's a lot fewer people, a lot more pieces of, a lot more blocks.
6: So You see that the tone of the stone changes from yellow to gray yeah. or cream to gray. So the cream color in the industry, they call buff color. And the one down, down is called gray. So gray is actually original kind of a supposed to be original from like millions of years ago. It was like deposited and water sips through it, there's some of the minerals and all that kind of thing, uh, pressure under the blend, changes the color gray to buff. But the buff is actually considered to be more harder to find, harder to, uh, like a a little rare than gray. So it's a little more pricier, you know, in terms of it's like the selective, selecting the color. It's a little bit more price, like higher price range. You don't if you don't select it they call it variegated so it's a random choose so whatever the block of thing is has a variegation between buff and gray so you'll be able to find some building in Limes, uh, in, in the campus will have a both of this in one building that was done by variegated which is a little more economic uh, using right. the stone because right. if we have to select either gray or buff it's, it takes more time and more energy to select the Thing. So I see a lot of great uh, variation right there.
1: When the, you deal with stone, you take the core sample, then you eventually you have a query, and then you take the stone to the mill to be finished, and then ship it out, and then it's going on a building. I mean, it's not just big rocks. It's, there's a lot involved.
0: It is amazing the different colors.
3: You know, just looking at these.
0: Just looking at um, these over here. There's. You know this these really pale ones um compared to the how dark these this stack is right Maybe here
6: because it's a wet yeah.
0: oh. <laughs>
5: <laughs> it to do with they do get darker when they're wet and then they get a little bit lighter as they dry up so that's you're seeing a little more variation here than would actually be the case once they're on a building they're set uh, but yeah there are one of the reasons indiana limestone is uh, coveted for architectural work is actually the homogeneity of the uh of the color and the uh but we do have as jay already explained uh, gray and buff and then when you have those together we call it variegated uh, but between two pieces of stone that are both gray or two pieces of stone that are both buff you have a lot of similarity and so it gives you a nice architectural finish
1: There's a lot of residences that are made from our stone. I mean, big, important places. Um, Biltmore Mansion has our stone on it. When the Pentagon was damaged in 2001, we were able to match the stone and, and repair that. Also, the Empire State Building has, um, that's where the Empire Queer comes in. That's where the stone for that building came from. And That's
0: why it's called Empire Queer.
1: Yes.
6: So when uh, 9-11 hit the Pentagon, the Pentagon building was uh, built really short amount of time with every industry of the whole industry of a baby stone, and not baby stone, industry of a whole Indiana limestone worked one time together, collaborated to build the whole whole building as a one unit. Um, So at that time, they used a stone texture for uh, some of the facade, and then when 9-11 hit the uh, Pentagon, there, this Vibe Stone was the only, only place that can replace the same texture. Wow. Yeah, so the Vibe Stone Company flew into Washington uh, right away, and then they saw the texture, and then they were able to produce a similar texture.
1: We went to Pira's one day, and there was a mill there in the 20s called the Fanning Mill. And we went back to the site of where the mill had been, this was in the late '80s, and um, we didn't take pictures then either. I don't know why we didn't take pictures, but anyway, he was showing me this is where the saws were, and this is where blah blah blah. And he could tell, you know, where all the equipment had been. And there was a railroad track coming through there. Of course, the railroad tracks are still there. The trains are gone, and those massive column bases—you've seen them—they. They're like six feet in diameter, and there was two of them sitting there next to the railroad track. And to me, that was just sad. They're just sitting there waiting on a train that's never going to come, and I just, it kind of overwhelmed me a little bit. I just thought, how sad that these guys work so hard to get these done, and they're not going anywhere. But, I mean, a lot of the quarries had to shut down at some point, and there's probably still good stone in a lot of them.
5: Before Bybee Stone was Bybee Stone, it was Matthews Brothers and Matthews Brothers started a century plus ago and they started as a quarry operation. At that time, uh, the typical way of doing masonry and carved stone was actually to quarry the block and then ship the block to the site where masons would actually work on the stone on the site of construction. So the, the famous example is the Biltmore, but that changed and people realized it was more efficient. Where you to fabricate stone in a central location where all of your tools are, and where you can have a, a really nice setup, and then ship the finished uh, work to the site. So the Matthews Brothers, quarried for a while, but then they became more fabricators. They built the fabrication plant. They decided that there was no more usable stone here, so they stopped quarrying. When my grandfather bought Matthews Brothers in 1979 we started quarrying again for a while. Technology, it allowed us to, to get some stone that the Matthews brothers weren't able to get before. And so then we quarried for a while, but then basically ran into the same problem. The deposit was no longer, was, there's was plenty of stone, but you need to get enough high quality stone out. If every other quarry block you take out isn't really usable, then it doesn't matter how much material there is there. So we've focused on fabrication ever since then. We quit quarrying and we've strictly done fabrication.
0: Can you actually read what it
6: says? United States of America, Donald James Trump, President, General Service Administration, and Emily W. Murphy, Administrator, 2019 to
5: 2022. Indiana limestone is used pretty frequently on government buildings. a large chunk of Washington, D.C. is comes from right here in uh, Hoosiers' backyards uh, from South Central Indiana. And so that's an example that's obviously for a GSA building uh, and just commemorating who was president and administrator at the time. So it's not uncommon to see work coming through here that's going to iconic, important buildings around the country. And for the folks who work here, I think there's a certainly amount, uh, a nice amount of pride and knowing that they're contributing to building these things that are gonna be around probably after you and I and all three of us standing here are long gone. And that's kind of a, a nice humbling uh, thought to have. Uh, I think anytime you can contribute to something that's gonna outlast you, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful feeling.
1: As you're going south to Bedford and you pass through Olytic, as you're going up the hill to Fifth Street in Bedford, there's a little addition to the right. If you go back there, it's not too far from where the Dark Hollow Quarry was. And they named one of the quarries back there Baalbek. B-A-A-L-B-E-C. Well, it turns out there was a Baalbek, B-A-A-L-B-E-K, in Syria, and they actually had huge stones. I mean, you've seen these blocks on trucks around here when they're hauling those stone blocks they would make these look like toys and and they have a massive stone they call it the stone of the pregnant woman and it's huge and it's sticking out of the ground and there are people standing on it and they look like little ants my ex-husband and i in 1991 we went to hopkins cemetery i don't know if you know where that is it's it's south of needmore the Lawrence County Needmore, <laughs> but uh, not to be confused with Nashville. Um, we walked, we, t- we talked to the night watchman. Of course, they're not supposed to get permission, but he knew we weren't gonna be in there to tear things up, do mischief or get hurt or anything. And my, my ex-husband had worked in Montana for years. Anyway, we walked from Needmore to Olenek through the quarries, and it was a, in May and it was a full moon. And it was the most beautiful thing. I wish I had had a camera with me, but the stone was just looking kind of blue. It was just uh, ethereal. I I, And and it just looked like the Grand Canyon. I mean, you were here on the road, and then all of a sudden there was this huge gaping hole like the Grand Canyon, and (laughs) it was just amazing. We ended up getting into Olivi Uh, right at the edge of town, and at that time there was a tavern there, so we went in and had a beer, and then we walked back, and it was just, it was really exciting. Back in the 90s, I was on the um, tourism committee for Lawrence Monroe County, and we had a meeting at the Indiana Limestone Building, and um, I was talking to Brian Cox, who at that time worked for WFIU, And it was in March, and it's cold and rainy that day, windy. And I was telling him, at the back of that building, there are 25 large panels of different kinds of stone, and it's just like a supermarket where you pick out the kind of stone you want. And I think it's beautiful. And we went back there in the rain and the wind, (laughs) and he was fascinated by it, but I was offended because at that time, Oakland City University was using that building, and they had placed... a dumpster right in front of one of those panels. It irritated me. <laughs> but I'm sure they never thought, they didn't realize the significance of it or anything. But at, in the 80s also, um, Lydia Finkelstein, I think was her name, created this Land of Limestone exhibit that they had in the Inana Limestone Building at that time when it was Oakland City University. But it was beautiful. And the first time I went to it, they opened it on a Friday. Well, I was working for Culligan at the time, so I got to go in my lunch yard and hear the dedication, but then I had to leave before they took the tour. So I went back on Saturday to take the tour. And I'm walking through all this, and I see pictures of people I know and some of the equipment that I recognize and everything. And I come down this little stairway, and right in front of me is this four and a half or 5-foot picture of my ex-brother-in-law, Jim Leach, who passed away in 1991, by the way. He was hit by a car crossing the highway, wow. and um, because a lot of the stone workers have drinking problems, because when they're laid off in the winter, they have nothing to do. But anyway, he uh, was standing there looking at me, and it was just kind of overwhelming. I mean, I cried. <laughs> and he's posed like Michelangelo posed with a air hammer or something on his shoulder. And, and so I still have that picture too, and that's kind of neat.
0: So there's tulip trees growing up where you know where they've been cut. I'm sure for the, the quarry. And then up at the top of the hill, where there's the the you can see the edge of the quarry. There's these two columns just standing there, sort of among the trees. It feels sort of like ancient Greece or something. Well, there's so those memorials
5: up there. Two of them are to uh, two of my uncles who passed away years ago, and one to my grandfather who founded uh, Bybee Stone. So. Yeah, they're always up there on that kind of cliff edge looking down over the mill. It's, it's kind of poetic. It's interesting. I don't think anybody's uh, mentioned that it feels like ancient Greece, but, you know, that's, that's an interesting comparison. Just random limestone monuments in the landscape.
1: If you ever go to Bedford, go to Green Hill Cemetery, and some of the monuments there, there's one of a golfer, and there's one of this, this boy, he was 17, I think. He was electrocuted at the end of the stone work he went home. He left his workbench like he always did and went out and got electrocuted that night. Well then his co-workers built this monument stone to look like his work table. And it's it's kind of overwhelming. When I was working for Culligan, we had drinking water machines, you know, and, and all the mills rented them from us. Well the Macmillan Mill, which at that time was on Olytic Road, is no longer in existence. They called one day, and it was in the middle of August, hotter than heck, and they were out of water. Well, our delivery man was booked up solid, and I said, well, I, I won't have a delivery man for a couple of days, but I'll bring you some myself. So I put six five-gallon bottles of water in the back seat of my car, which almost made it dragged around. And so I went over there, and I pulled up to the edge of the mill, this guy was standing there smoking a cigarette. And I said, I have your water for your water coolers. Do you know where to take it? He goes, yeah, I'll just drive across the mill. And I said, drive across the mill? He said, yeah. I started driving across that mill. And I could actually feel the spirit of men and the stone. I'm not kidding you. It was a really spiritual experience. I mean, tears were running down my face. Because my neighbors had worked in that mill, you know. I don't think they understood the impact that they had, but that's why I wanted to honor the stone workers because they just went and did their job every day. And they have built the nation, all these buildings and stuff that just monumental. I I can't really talk about it even now, it's still just, I mean, it was just, it was like I was in a holy place.
0: You've been listening to Interstates. If you have a story for us, or if you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Mark Cella, Michael Pascash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Joyce Jeffries, Jay Kim, and Dorian Bybee, and Rachel Barr's students at the Bloomington Academy of Science and Entrepreneurship. That's Nicole Dewar, Ambrose Lee, Lizzie Bush, and Peyton Chitwood. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music and Airport People. I want to acknowledge and honor the Miami, Delaware, Potawatomi, and Shawnee people on whose ancestral homelands and resources Indiana University Bloomington, home of WFIU, is built, as well as the generations of workers who built it. All right, time to take a breath and listen to a place. You've been listening to Backyard Birdsong, May 2020, Bloomington, Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening.